I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Pakina Maimer, and you're listening to Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This is the final episode of our six-part series into the secrets of good science communication. Getting your first article or book published can be a little tricky, perhaps even daunting. Today, I talk to authors, editors, and science communication experts about how to mine one's own research for ideas, using their published work as prime example. We'll go over some of the golden rules on how to communicate science and finally how to pitch articles, op-eds, and commentaries. I didn't start um, in science communication and it's something that I um, have, have really enjoyed trying to, to explore some more um, kind of from mid to <laughs> from, from mid-career rather than from very early career. In fact, I remember very clearly making my first kind of baby steps in this direction, writing short feature articles um, for magazines like American Scientist um, and working with a really fantastic editor at the time, uh, Roz Reed, who was then at the, at the magazine. You just heard from David Kaiser, an MIT History of Science professor and a senior lecturer of physics. David is a historian of science, and his writings are usually at the intersection of science, politics, and history. With the help of editors like Roz, especially very early on, you know, I, I began trying to figure out that this kind of writing is it's different from the kinds of communication I had been, you know, practicing as a graduate student, as a young faculty member, and so on. Uh, and it, it wasn't such an obvious um, transition, and it took other sets of eyes and very skilled editors like, like Roz and, and others since then to really very patiently, very generously, you know, kind of work with me um, and say things like, you know, look at this um, piece, you know, the paragraphs are really long, the sentences, sentence by sentence are very long, you've kind of buried the lead, you know, I was doing all these kinds of things in the beginning. And for me, I was so much more concerned about how could I write such a piece without, you know, dozens and dozens of footnotes to back up every last minute little thing I might want to say. I was really thinking about it at a different scale and I had different kind of concerns in mind in the beginning. So that's just a long way of saying it was, it was actually quite a process, quite a transition. And it took a lot, of, for me, it took a lot of practice and not just kind of practice on my own, but practice really interacting with very skilled professional editors who were very kind and were very patient with me uh, and to try to, to kind of work on new habits that at first really, as I say, were, were pretty different from what I'd been used to. Practice, taking a step back and looking at the big picture, as well as pulling threads together from many disciplines are some of the most common advice I've been hearing from my guests throughout this series. David's work is a testimony to how well this works. His book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, 
A story about a group of freewheeling physicists who helped rejuvenate modern physics is a case in point. In that book, in his next book, Quantum Legacies, Dispatches from an Uncertain World, David focuses on people. They are the heroes of the story and the protagonists around which the narrative unfolds. And this right there is another tried and tested method of creating interest in a science story and pulling readers in, putting people at the heart of the science. He tells me a bit about how a book that is essentially about the process of how we learned about atoms and the conceptual uncertainty surrounding them became a work about social and political uncertainty and upheaval. So the, the, the first sort of uh, section of the book is really trying to tell a, a version or episodes uh, within the, the story of how we've come to think about uh, nature at these very, very tiny scales. Again, sort of atoms and parts of atoms and what might be the ultimate forces that make uh, you know, particles of matter interact with each other and, and give rise to the phenomena that we would, you know, that, in which we're immersed. Uh, and again, to t- that story was coming together during, uh, first of all, as a product of many, many contributors. It was not a kind of lonesome genius story. It was, a, it was an ensemble cast, you might say, really from the beginning, with a lot of rivalry and a lot of um, very strong emotions among the individual researchers at the time. Uh, and o- again, overlaid upon some pretty dramatic disruptions in their intellectual lives, in their, in their personal lives. Uh, with, um, you know, world wars and fascism and soon a whole new nuclear age and lots and lots of of uncertainties at at each of those moments as well. So I wanted to understand, like, who were some of the people who have crafted partial answers to what we now kind of take for granted? We, at least the sort of specialists who work in this area. You know, not everyone was born knowing about the uncertainty principle. No one was born knowing about it. And, And ideas that many of us might take for granted today were... Were, were barely even recognized as questions, let alone as answers, you, not so long ago. Um, ideas like quantum entanglement, which is now so central for so much of what's going on in the field. So I wanted to, again, ask about not only what are the ideas, but how have those topics or even those questions come to the fore? How have we come to ask these kinds of questions today and puzzle toward, toward answers or partial answers? David Barraby is the author of the award-winning book, Us and Them, The Science of Identity. He's been published in magazines like The New Yorker, Nature, and The New York Times Magazine. He also teaches an annual workshop about science writing for scientists and researchers at the Marine Biological Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. That's when I first met David, when he invited me to talk about my experience as a science editor. I remember that during that workshop, many of the scientists present had fascinating stories and the burning desire to tell them. But the first stumbling block was always how to even begin telling these stories. Where do you start? One of the best things you can do is to, and one of the hardest things for scientists to do, is to tell the story the way they would tell it to a friend on the same campus, the way normal human beings talk to one another and become excited about what the other person is saying. You know, you don't say, well, here's a, here's the materials section of my research. I'm going to tell you all about that. If you run into someone in the hall, you say, wow, you know, it's just, it's the most surprising thing happened. We thought we were going to have this. And then, you know, we had this completely anomalous result and we're excited about it for this reason. You know, that generally your instinct for how you would tell someone informally is, is, is going to be a good guide for you. Um, and the reason I stress this is because, because this is what's sort of hard for scientists, not because it's, it's, it's been trained out of them. Like any other profession, you learn as you are trained in it that sounding like a regular human being is amateurish. 
that the way you signal that you are a serious person and that you've learned a great deal and that you are to be respected is by speaking in the language of the of other specialists. You know, it's, people can find it very difficult to write like a normal human being would talk, even though they talk like normal people. But when they sit down to write, they've been trained for five years or 10 years or 20 years to formalize and jargonize in order to mark that they are serious, that they fit in. And so you have to kind of realize that your goal, if you want to make a narrative, is, is different. And then the other thing I guess I would suggest is, is, is to just be clear that you are trying to tell a story that that is what interests people. And, and sometimes if it's complicated enough piece of writing that I'm working on, I will actually do two outlines. I will have like a narrative outline of, you know, this happened, that happened, this happened, and this person did that, and this other person did this other thing in response. Um, here's what it looks like, smells like, you know, feels like. And then next to that, I'll have the ideas, the outline of, you know, okay, well, so this is why this is important, why it's logical, that what what follows logically from from this statement to that statement and uh, how you can generalize and so on. And I'll have those next to one another. And then I'll just sort of look for ways in which the kind of sequence of ideas can be related to the sequence of events. And, and, that, and that sort of helps to make sure that I'm not sacrificing one for the other, that I've got both. So language is your key. Adjusting your language by making sure that you translate the most exciting part of your work clearly will automatically make it a better and stronger narrative. But not just that, the language and the words you choose to tell your story will decide which audience will tune in. If you say, okay, my audience is the, 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 the great masses of people who will watch an evening news program, but then you fall into using the terms of your discipline without defining them. If you say DNA without explaining what DNA is, or if you say... Um, telomere without saying what a telomere is, or if you um, use a, a, a term that has very specific meaning in your discipline um, that isn't recognizable to anyone not in it, then, then you, will, you will be signaling to those people that this is not for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, every time you write something or say something, you're saying whether you mean to or not, who should be listening to you? If you speak uh, in uh, the, the language of a medical conference on virology, as if you were talking to other specialists, you are signaling that it's for specialists or people who know a lot. If you're talking about you know, how to not get a virus, you, you don't use that language. Again, this sounds obvious, but it's extremely difficult for people to keep this in mind. Um, journalists as well as scientists, because it's just you have... You have a, we all have a tendency to fall back on writing for ourselves. Uh, something looks, sounds good, seems understandable to me because I know all the stuff behind that goes, all the background need, needed to understand it is in my head. Um, but you have to imagine that other person really well. It's okay to signal that your piece of work is for a specific audience, but you want to be in control of that. You want to you want to to know who what you're doing so that so that the signal that you send about who should be reading your work is the one you want to send. How do I know this is for me? And what are some of the entry points into this industry? The thing that motivates you if you want to write a book or start your own blog or start your own podcast, it has to it has to be something that really makes you passionate to do the work. In that sense, it's one of the sort of overlaps of 
writing or communication, journalism, and, and science, because in the same way that happy scientists or people working on something they genuinely are interested in and genuinely wonder about, uh, you know, ha happy journalists are people who are writing about things that, that, that really excite them, that, they re that really um, make them uh, curious and enthusiastic. That would be my first piece of advice is sort of don't condescend to the, to the idea of writing for the public, like write about something you really want to do. Then I guess, secondly, I would say um, that, uh, and, you know, again, at a practical level, I mean, it's, it's not easy to get a book contract, but it's easy to start a blog. It's relatively easy to start a podcast. Um, I know there's, a, for me, an intimidating amount of stuff you have to learn about microphones and sound levels and so on. But I mean, people have done it. It's not, uh, you don't need to go work uh, five years at a radio station to learn it. So, I mean, there, there are entry points that are not difficult, that are not intimidating. You don't need to wait until a Scientific American or Nature asks you to, to write a front of the book uh, essay. You can simply take that first step, write, write something in a blog, speak something into a podcast. So I guess the second piece of advice I would have is, is if you're passionate about doing this, interested in trying it, start. <laughs> It's like, you know, I knew someone who said, you know, there's a time when you have to stop going to the library and do an experiment. It's the same kind of impulse. I mean, there's a time when you have to stop saying, oh, this would be a great idea. I'd like to do this someday, someday maybe. And just, you know. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Don't do it. You're listening to Working Scientist. My next guest is Beth Daly, editor of The Conversation, a science communication website dedicated to running commentaries and essays from scientists. While many newsrooms might not have the bandwidth or time to teach specialists and scientists how to create better narratives, The Conversation is built specifically to do that. Beth's work as an editor does not only involve picking out the best pitches, but also helping researchers find their voice and polish up their ideas, encouraging them to engage with non-specialists and non-peers. Beth, thank you so much for talking to me. I want to start off by introducing our listeners to The Conversation. So The Conversation works with academics to translate their research into everyday journalism. And the way we do it is we operate like an independent nonprofit newsroom and we get pitches every day from scholars about topical and also just interesting research they're doing. They pitch us stories based on ones we find the most interesting and in the public interest. We'll have one of our 19 subject-specific editors work with an academic to shape a story so it's digestible for the general public. It then, once it's published, it goes through a very rigorous editing process prior, um, but it gets to a story that is really readable. It then goes out on the Associated Press wire and to hundreds of news outlets across the U.S. and world. I know that your content gets picked up by broadsheets and general science magazines, so it's a great way for researchers to amplify their voices and increase their chances of getting their writing into big media outlets. What kind of audience are you directing your content to? You know, science journalism is critically important and 
what we do is not that, right? Like that that serves an amazing purpose. Watchdogging science, translating uh, really good research and and sort of the trends and fields of research for the general public. We we do one thing, but we I think we do it quite well. And we're really getting out one person's research to the general public in a, in, in a readable way. The academics we talk to because they, they know their one subject or several subjects so so well. Oftentimes they might deliver a story to us that's filled with a lot of jargon. Um, a lot of words and concepts that people may not really get. So our job, and we take it really, really seriously, is to like, kind of push back um, and say, hey, you know, no one's going to understand what that means in the first sentence. Can we think about writing a lead, much like a journalist? Our editors will say, hey, no, we have to explain what that means completely. And it usually works out really well. So at the end of the day, we're writing for an audience of, um, yes, sometimes it's in Scientific American, but it's also in the Washington Post, in hundreds of local papers, in Poxitensi Spirit, in Pennsylvania, to local papers that to pick up our stuff because it is so readable. So how does it actually work? Do you approach academics or do they approach you? Every day at nine, just like many newsrooms across the, the, the country and world, we, we have a meeting and talk about the news of the day and what stories we can chase that day. And, um, and then what happens um, is that we send out something called an expert call out. So we say to all the academics, um, you know, hey, uh, and it goes to mostly comms folks in um, uh, universities saying, hey, do you have anyone who can explain um, you know, the coronavirus and how you protect yourself? You know, or can you explain... Trump's latest policy or, or whatnot. And then they will come back with lots of ideas and, and pitch us and we take the best content. At the same time, every week we get hundreds of pitches from academics all around the country that say, hey, this is what I want to write about. It's my research. You know, why do zebras have stripes? You know, why 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 it's hard for people to sing um, a certain pitch? And I've mathematically figured out why. And then we also cho- we also look at those rigorously and choose the best stories. What kind of advice do you usually give writers on how to find ideas? That's something both journalists struggle with, I think, and and particularly researchers because they're so steeped in their research. So um, let me give you an example. So um, I'm a little bit obsessed with something called this movement in the late Victorian era where uh, very wealthy people would bring in um, from, from who moved to the U.S., from England or wherever, would uh, want to populate the U.S. with um, the flora and fauna of their uh, native country. Um, and it was, it, was, it was sort of a brief movement, but it kind of gave way to invasive plants and things. But they brought, cam- you know, this is where they brought camels to Arizona and a, a, a guy released starlings into um Uh, Central Park underneath the, the uh, allegedly, I don't know if it's really true, that he wanted to release all of Shakespeare's uh, birds mentioned in sonnets um, into Central Park. And and hence, we have a, a starling problem. And I, I called the researcher who who's just like one person at MIT who studies this really, really well. And I said, uh, you know, could you write this for us? Because I, I was just interested in it, you know. And she said, well, well, fine, but that's not even interesting. I mean, I just study this and Well, how is it relevant to today? And and that's the question I would always ask scientists saying like, what is it about your work that can be relevant for people today? And it's 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 a really good exercise to, to do. And I, I guarantee you 99.9% of the time you're going to find the answer. For this one scientist, it was the fact that we kind of framed it a little bit um, around uh, it, it sort of a, a rise in invasive uh, plant species, a, a small effort going on in Michigan. And it, it came out really well. Um, history can really, really also be a powerful tool. Like if you're studying something about, let's say, 
phosphorus or nitrogen, you know, overload, for example, and how it's um, affecting uh, dead zones or poxia in, in waterways, you know, it, it, you can get really steep in the research. And I, I, I've talked to, I talked to a lot of people who study that. And so how, how is that, you know, how is that relevant to the, to the everyday person? Everyday person, I mean, you know, how is it relevant today? History can really prove a really big purpose. We had someone write for us who looked at uh, runoff, I believe, from fertilizers in Iowa and how it uh, created a, it was a very small uh, sample size, but how it created a really bad problem. The, his very narrow research, um, and it was going back into the 50s, 1950s, and a little bit into the 60s, I believe, was able to inform the general public about sort of the bigger problems with um, nitrogen and phosphorus overload going on today, because it was it was a very small, uh, discrete study that looked at, you know, really the, the, the death of a, of a lake. Um, and he was able to transfer that with our editor's help into a broader discussion about the problems with nitrogen and phosphorus runoff. Beth, that's a great way of fleshing out how good ideas evolve. As a writer myself, I would advise that one way of stepping into the world of science narrative is to learn by example and read as many articles and feature stories as you can. Books, listen to science podcasts, and really try to pick on how seasoned journalists and communicators construct a story so you can get a feel of what works and what doesn't. I hope you enjoyed the series as much as I did making it. You can listen to previous episodes of Working Scientist on Acast, Apple, or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so you can get notified of future episodes. I'm Pakina Maimer. It's been an absolute pleasure taking you on this journey of what it means and what it takes to be a science communicator. Thank you for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.